I want to talk about burnout. I'll talk a little about some of my own experiences with burnout, and then I want to see how Jesus handled burnout. Did he burn out? Did he not burn out? Did he have an anti-burnout program? Because he was very, very busy. Just a little bit about burnout. Some of the things that make you susceptible to burnout. Number one, you try to be everything to everyone. You try to be everything to everyone. You're a people pleaser. That would describe me. That describes a lot of people around the holidays. We don't want to upset anyone. We want to make sure everyone is happy with us. We've got all the cards out. Our casserole turned out. What, whatever it is, everyone needs to be happy with you. If you feel that at the end of a busy day, you have not made a meaningful difference. And at the end of a busy day, you feel like you just haven't made a meaningful difference. You are susceptible to burnout. If you feel that what you are doing is not recognized, you largely go unrecognized. There's no real reward for the work that you're doing. You may be susceptible to burnout. You identify with your job or your project so strongly that you lack time for yourself. You identify your work so hard at your job, or it could be a person that you're devoted to, such that you're lacking time for yourself. And lastly, if you feel that you have little or no control over your life, it seems to be out of control. Your schedule's out of control. People are asking you things all the time. You are lacking control in your life, susceptible to burnout. One thing I'll say about people that burn out is that lazy people don't burn out. <laughs> so if you have experienced burnout, I have good news for you. You are not a lazy person. People that burn out are responsible. They are fastidious. They are ambitious. They are determined. And they are hardworking. Lazy people don't burn out. I went to Africa a few years ago to work for three weeks uh, in a hospital. It was in Kenya. It was a remote hospital. You might imagine just the preparation for going there, packing the suitcase full of supplies because they don't have the sutures and things that you might need, trying to predict anything that you might encounter, getting all those bags through customs, finally getting there, working for two weeks, It was difficult. The cases were very difficult because of the technology that they had or didn't have and because of some of the cases. There were a little three-year-old girl who was out 
playing. Her mother was cutting firewood. She cut a tree down. The tree landed on the girl. Had a head injury, blood in the brain. We were unable to save her. That was my first day. So it, it was a difficult experience for me emotionally. It was difficult physically. It was tiring. I wasn't sleeping very well. The jet lag, it's really on the other side of the world. And then there was the little social situation because I had been single for quite a long time. And many of us believe, it's sort of this unspoken rule, that if you go to Africa, you just might find someone there. That there might be, if you do that favor for God, he then should really do a favor for you. That's the way the deal works. This was, by the way, my second trip to Africa. <laughs> and I was sure. And at the end of two weeks, there was someone that I liked. And it became very clear that she didn't like me. So there I am, other side of the world, working very hard, and I have this heartbreak, and I'm continuing to operate. The last day of surgery, very difficult case. It was supposed to be an easy case, but due to some very strange circumstances, it became like a nightmare. Gave her plenty of morphine overnight. The next day, her pain was better. It looked like you know, thank God she was going to recover. That verse that I used was, the God of all comfort comforts us in our afflictions so that we can comfort those in afflictions. Well, I got on the plane, just said, Lord, I hope she heals. And I got on the plane and left. I'll just tell you that a month later, she did heal, and she was happy with the surgery. Everything did go well. But in that season, I was not sleeping well. I'm now jet-lagged because I'm, I'm on the way back. Didn't sleep at all on the way back, 36 hours. End up back here and began taking call a few days later in San Diego. Difficult week of call. At the end of the week, I noticed that I had a little cough. And then I woke up one morning, and the entire bottom bed sheet was wet. Now, I hadn't wet the bed in years, at least not since medical school. So I said it was probably nothing. I had too many covers on me. Well, it happened again the next night. Now the bottom sheet was wet and the top sheet was wet. I said, oh, this is, this sounds familiar. This, this, I've learned about this in school. This is called night sweats. Hmm. So I said to myself, 
Nice sweats. I know that goes along with certain diseases. So I did what any of you would do. I Googled it. Number one diagnosis, tuberculosis. Yeah. Oh, I was around tuberculosis. So it wasn't long. I had to go to now wear a mask, isolation. So I've just gotten back from three weeks. And now I'm essentially a leper. You can't go near anyone with tuberculosis. You, you've got to stay away from them. So I'm, my infectious disease colleagues were so excited to have a... <laughs> Infectious disease doctors mostly deal with people who are allergic to antibiotics or something. So to have a big fish, a neurosurgeon back from Africa, with night sweats and a cough, that is a big fish. That's something you talk about at the Christmas party. They were, one of them even said, oh, I hope you have tuberculosis. <laughs> oh, I mean, so we can get you on the right medicine. I understand. And as I lay in bed now, getting worse and worse, fever, the chills, unable to eat, they call tuberculosis a consumption because it just sort of eats you away. And they took samples, and they wouldn't find out for six weeks if I had this, but in the meantime, I can't see patients. I can't do anything. I can't work. I've just taken all this time off of work, gone three weeks, now I've gotten another six weeks off, and I'm laying in the bed, can't sleep because you're coughing all night. And I was angry. Wait a minute. This is not supposed to happen to me. I was out there doing good. And I realized that I was angry with God. I tried to pray, but it's, you know, it's, people always say, oh, you should just pray. You know, it's really hard to pray when your person you're talking to, you're angry with. <laughs> it's also hard to pray when, you, when you're stressed and you haven't slept. Prayer, like talking to a person, is you see their eyes, you see their reaction. Trying to talk to a person you can't see is an extra level of brain exercise. That is not easy. That's why we text. That's why we're always on the phones. We long for intimacy. We long for connection, but we don't generally get that with God. We don't get that with prayer. Unless you become good at it, unless it's a language that you learn, unless you're disciplined with it. But it's very difficult to do it when you're not feeling rested, thankful, So as I was lying there for a day or so and realized I tried to read some psalms, do something, but I, was, I realized I was angry. And the word came to me, and the word was entitlement. 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 What is entitlement? I said, is this entitlement? That you're supposed to provide me a spouse if I go to Africa, is that entitlement? Is it entitlement that yeah, I'm a neurosurgeon so I'm not supposed to get sick? Other people get sick and I take care of them and that's the way it works. But I can do dangerous things and go to Africa. There's a reason not everyone jumps on a plane and goes to Africa because it's dangerous there. 
but I get to go and I got a card that I punch and says, well, but I don't get sick because I'm serving the Lord. And those of us who are in ministry, that would be all of us, who love the Lord. If you are listening to my voice, there's something in you that loves the Lord, that wants to serve people, that has a heart to reach out. And when we do that, oftentimes there is an expected, we wouldn't verbalize it, but there's something in this that we would say, yeah, I, I'm expecting something here. Even if it's subconscious. And when we do that, we set ourselves up for this entitlement. And nothing will steal your joy faster than believing that God owes you something. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter how beautiful you are, no matter how talented you are, how industrious and how wealthy you are, actually it is those gifts that will set you up to be entitled that will make you miserable. Humility is the path to joy. Entitlement, which is essentially a sort of form of pride, which is I am such and such. My family did this. I was this. Therefore, I deserve. Look at my friends. They get this, so therefore I should. All those little deals we make in our mind about the way life should work. That will set you up for misery. And I was miserable. I was laying there absolutely miserable. But once I got that entitlement thing in my mind, I started to think, okay, that's me. I get it. I admit I am entitled. What is the antidote to entitlement? God, you've got to show me what the antidote is. There's got to be a way out of this. Okay. I admit it. And you know what? Maybe I'm not the only one who's entitled, but right now, when you're sick, you are, there's one thing that illness and pain does to you, whether it's emotional or physical or financial, it focuses you on you. You are the center of the universe. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not, doesn't work well for you, but you are. And so you're trying to work out of that. And so the first thing I realized is that an entitled person has really no gratitude. I wasn't thankful for, so I said, I wasn't thankful for anything. I tried to think of something I was thankful for. I couldn't think of a thing. Nothing came to mind as I laid there coughing, sleepless. Look, it's not pretty. You, you've got to start from where you are. And so I said, God, I, I'm going to thank you for my eyes. I thank you for my eyes. I don't feel like gratitude. You see, gratitude and thankfulness is the beginning of relationship because we're recognizing I didn't create my eyes. I, ha I don't deserve to see. There are other people who can't see. Why is it that I can see? I am starting to change this relationship from you owe me to I'm thankful for what I've got. And it starts to change your brain chemistry. It starts to make you more relational. Because when you're under stress, when you're angry, when you're tired, 
even hungry. You are not relational. You're not relational with other people, and you're certainly not relational with God. You are demanding, irritatingly so. That's <laughs> why so I started with my eyes. And thank you that I can see colors. There are other people that can see, but they can't see colors, but I can. And I just love blues and reds. And, and I can hear. I can hear music. There are things that I can still listen to, and I can still talk. Thank you, God. And if I get out of bed, I can walk at least to the bathroom and back right now. And I started to move myself with gratitude. Now, I didn't feel like it. There are some things that we need to do that help our brain change that, that we don't feel like doing. I started keeping a gratitude list by my bed. For years, I've wanted to have a gratitude list. I always thought it was a good idea. The, the depression research shows it is very effective to write three things every night on a list or three little paragraphs before you go to bed, the things you are thankful for. Well, I said, yeah, that's a good idea. I do it a couple of nights, but then I'd forget. So I got a pad by my bed, and I started to now having to write those things and not just uh, sky was blue, you know, because you can write them such that they have no real neurologic effect for you. And then you can write them like you're really grateful, like you're really elaborating. And it was just a nice, cool day in San Diego today, and I'm thankful that it's not as hot as it was. You know, whatever you are thankful for, getting that out of you right before you then sleep because sleep is a time when your brain's going to be thinking more about those things and starting to change your brain chemistry. That if you'll do that, the research shows that that has an antidepressive effect. And I was certainly moving toward depression. It took six weeks before the test came back, and it turned out I had a viral pneumonia. I did not have tuberculosis. I was very, very thankful, but it still took me a while. I would say six months to get my health back to 95, 100%. I was not able to do the things that I used to do, not feeling good, feeling more fatigued. And so I had to keep aggressively moving toward God. And one of the th things that I also use to move toward God is music. Now, I play, I got a little keyboard at the house, and I learned a couple of chords. Everything is in the key of C. <laughs> Very simple. You can play three or four chords. You can play a song. And if you can play a song, you can write a song. And so when I'm going through hard times, I will play that little keyboard, and I will sing because... That worship, to worship God when you are not feeling worshipful. I believe God is so surprised. He calls the angels over. Hey, would you look at this? We don't see this very often. He's suffering, and he's singing these songs. Come, come, come. Yeah. Yeah. 
And there's something about that worship that would also pull me up for a bit. Now, none of these are quick fixes. None of these are permanent fixes, but it's part of a lifestyle that I started using when I was disappointed. And many people think, oh, well, if you are a neurosurgeon, you you don't get disappointed. Everyone does what you say. You boss them around. You throw things when you want. No. I mean, you can do that, but the path to joy is humility. So anytime you start pushing your weight around, unhappy. So neurosurgeon and humility, those two words typically don't go together, but neurosurgeon and unhappy often do go together. Angry. Why? I'll tell you why. Entitlement. I worked this hard. I am this smart. I've gotten to this point, and you're not respecting me? But it's in our society. It's all of us. I see it in beautiful women. I see it in smart men, wise men. I see it in people in California. If you live in California, you are blessed. If you live in the United States, you are blessed. You live here, and you are expecting... We watch the television, we hear the story, and then we haven't even started talking about what you're expecting as far as your romantic life is supposed to be. A lot of pain. And yet God is with us always in our pain if we will access him. The access is a little harder. So I don't want to make it sound like it's easy. It's going to take you, actually, it's going to take you some growth. Because when you are down like that, in the bed, sick, feeling sorry for yourself, full of self-pity, let me tell you something about self-pity. Because I was there full of it. Self-pity is brilliant. Self-pity is the counterfeit Holy Spirit. Everything beautiful has a counterfeit. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. He's the comforter. He is supposed to comfort you in your afflictions. He wants to comfort you in your afflictions. And self-pity comes along and says, oh, let me comfort you. You deserve better. God is not giving you the good stuff. You go to the bar, you go somewhere else. All of your friends are living in sin and they are having so much fun. Look at you. Oh yeah, self-pity. You deserve better. It starts to get a little angry. It kind of helps you get angry with God. Yeah, I have been working pretty hard. I went to Africa, for goodness sake. What is up with this deal? So destructive. And anything you do that self-pity leads you into, it's going to take you a while, but you're going to come back to the very same place. You're going to have to repent of it, whether it's going to the refrigerator, whether it's going out with someone you shouldn't, whether it's doing something, getting angry and telling someone off. What, you're, it's just going to cost you to get back to the humility, to the comfort. Say, Father, would you comfort me? I need some comfort right now. Can you understand how I'm feeling? 
I can't pray. I can't, I don't feel like, I don't feel good. Was there ever a time when you didn't feel good? Do you understand that? Oh, I guess there was. So we turn to Jesus. I'd love to, I love to find episodes in Jesus' life that might match what I'm going through. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. And then we just sort of, many of us read over that as a fact. Well, he was rejected at Nazareth. Hometown. School teachers. Neighbors. Your parents' friends. The people that you want to accept you. Why? Because the people that you love. The people that you would expect to give you some grace. People that you've been working with for many years. I wonder if anyone's lost a job, understands. Lost a relationship, would understand. Ouch. Rejected at Nazareth. Hometown. Small town. And it also says that he could do no mighty works there. So all the people, they didn't have faith in him. They didn't want to believe in him. We get to Matthew 14. And his cousin, John the Baptist, is in prison. Sends people to ask Jesus if he's really the one. You can say he's he's not happy. Because Jesus comes out in his inaugural address saying, I'm here to set the captives free. Well, John hears this. He says, wait a minute, I'm, I'm a captive. I'm in prison. Wouldn't that mean me? You just announced you're here to set the captives free. Jesus says, blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. Doesn't set him free. Gets his head chopped off. Beheaded by a dancing girl? Does that strike anyone as ignoble, sort of ouch, sort of eh? Of all of the people, ah, oh, come on. I, I don't like that story. I, I wish they would take that out of the scripture. It's so dishonoring to his cousin. Does anyone see any foreshadowing in this? This is his Elijah. This is his forerunner. Wow. Two pretty big blows, one on top of one another. And it says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. I wonder if anyone can feel what that feels like. Gets that. Oh yeah. Yeah, desolate place by myself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the town's When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Wow. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. 
But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. And we know he feeds 5,000 people. He could do no mighty works in Nazareth, the place he wanted to be accepted, the place maybe you want to be accepted, your hometown, your social group, your family group. He wasn't accepted. He was actually rejected. In fact, they tried to kill him there. Pretty strong rejection. And then his cousin, young, same age as him, dies an ignoble death. He tries to get away to go to a desolate place. And I believe he wants to go there to be restored, to, to have his soul. Psalm 23, he restores my soul. Get his soul restored. Meet with his father. Get away. Why? Because your identity is shaken. Have you gone through some of these rejections, some of these painful circumstances? Who am I? What am I? I thought I was on the right track. Needs to get away. And when he's in a desolate place, instead of feeling sorry for himself, all these people show up. And he could be angry, like, come on, this movement's not going anywhere. But he sees what his father is doing. He wanted to be accepted in his hometown, but God is saying, I'm going to have you accepted in a desolate place. Is that okay for you? Is it okay to go somewhere else? And I'll send you the people who want you. They will walk for days to get to you. See, most of us want to be accepted in our hometown. What if there's something God is up to and he's drawing you away so that you can be in a desolate place, meeting with him. Let me ask you something. Was he able to do any mighty works in the desolate place? He fed 5,000 people. That's a mighty work. Couldn't do it in his hometown. Goes to the desolate place, and now he feeds, makes bread appear. Still wondering how he did that. He picks up 12 baskets full, gets the disciples now into a boat, sends them across the lake. It says he made them get into the boat. Now, why would it say that? Because it's evening. They've got baskets full of food. Why wouldn't they just stay and sleep there? They planned on having a retreat anyway. They don't want to go. He makes them get into a boat without him, sends them away and says, I will dismiss the crowd. 
dismisses the crowd. He doesn't really dismiss them because they won't leave, actually. We find out the next day they haven't left. He goes up to the mountains. Now, I believe, finally he's getting time with the Father. And now he is enjoying his fellowship with his Father because he saw what the Father was doing, and he went with it, and he didn't get into self-pity. But maybe he does need to grieve a little bit. Very helpful to be able to grieve and say, Father, do you understand how I feel? Do you understand what it's like to have, to lose relationships, to have people who should respect me, disrespect me? Do you get that? Oh, God gets that. He knows all about disrespect. He knows all about rejection for people that should absolutely love him. And Jesus certainly knows about that. So now... Disciples in the boat, rowing away against the wind. Windstorm comes up, 12 of them, but they've got, I predict, at least one basket of snacks with them. They brought one basket, so they've got a little something to munch on in the boat. Otherwise, they'd be so miserable, but they're already miserable. They didn't want to go, and now they're rowing against the wind. They are not happy. And you know how that works, because when you're in the boat and you're trying to row against the wind, all you're looking at is all this dead weight, these other people, that if they weren't there, it would be so much easier for you. Jesus comes walking on the water. And I want you to notice his, it says in another, not in Matthew, I think it's one of the other ones that says, and it was like he was going past them. He's out for a midnight stroll and just walking past them. He's so playful. After all of this tragedy, I want you to notice one of the anti-burnout prescriptions he uses is his playfulness. And I think he's even playful before when he says, you feed them. You feed them. And it's Peter who notices see he's missed a couple of these windows before. He missed the time they were training for this event they were in a boat before in a storm. Do you remember? Jesus is training their brains, just like he's training yours and mine. What you're going through right now, and each of us is going through something, we are all, our life is not working perfectly. Whatever you're going through, the good news is that you're probably going to go through something like that again, so you're going to want to learn how to go through it. This is the lesson of life. This is the lesson of the disciples in the boat. They've been in a boat before in a storm. Jesus was there with them at that time, but he was sleeping. He was there, but sleeping. They were terrified. They woke him up, calms the storm, and rebukes them. Where is your faith? And Peter's thinking, ouch, where? Yeah, I, I missed that. I missed that. What was I supposed to do? I, maybe I could have prayed and calmed the storm. 
And then he's just gone through this episode where Jesus says, you feed them. And Peter says, are you kidding me? And Jesus fed them, missed the window again. He has missed two opportunities to do what Jesus was doing. He is a disciple. We are supposed to be doing what he's doing. And so he's walking on the water. Peter is probably rowing. I don't think Matthew, the tax collector, was rowing. Peter's the fisherman. He's probably rowing. Jesus walking on the water. He's probably thinking, he's probably kicking himself that he didn't feed the 5,000 himself. So he says, Jesus, if that's you, you tell me to come to you on the water. Now Jesus says, come. Big smile on his face, I'm sure. And most of us remember this as, yeah, he walked and then he fell. I want you to notice how powerful fear is. I don't know what was supporting him from underneath. There was wind, so there were waves. So the waves were still washing over his ankles, but there was a power supporting him from underneath. With Jesus within arm's length, fear has the power to remove whatever is supporting you. That's impressive. Grabbed onto Jesus. The power returned. He was walking again. We miss that. Everyone thinks he walked and then he fell. We forget he walked and he fell and he walked back. I wonder if there's an opportunity that you have that you may be missing. Something God may be calling you to. Something that may take some courage. It may mean that your people pleasing may have to die. You're going to have to upset some people. And Jesus did, and I believe it hurt him that his whole town and his family, including his brothers, all rejected him. Ouch. I, I, most of us are people pleasers. Most of the population has some of that. We want people to like us. We're afraid of them. Is there some opportunity that is around you maybe even this season that you want to take advantage of and Jesus will walk with you. I believe Peter and Jesus walked back holding hands. Is there something that you can do holding Jesus' hand as you walk through this season? I want to give you just a moment now just to reflect on what I've said. If there is something that came out to you in your life, was it entitlement? Was it self-pity? Something, some way you can connect with Jesus at a different level, even just saying to him, do you understand how I feel? The psychological term is attunement. Can you, can you attune to me? You attune to a child who's in a tantrum, basically saying, your emotions don't scare me. You can be angry with me, it's going to be okay. I, I can handle that. Can you talk to him in a way to say, would you attune to me, help me understand that you understand how I'm feeling? Because once we are validated, then we can receive comfort. Most of us cannot, we run right to the refrigerator, to our chocolate, to our drink, to whatever. We try to comfort ourselves, but we've never been validated. That is a valid emotion, the grief, the pain, the loss. 
absolutely valid. God weeps with you. He cries with you. He feels with you. Can you give him the time and let him attune to you? Getting with your journal, taking a Sabbath, getting a retreat. I went on many retreats just alone. I said, God, I want, I want someone to go with. God said, well, I'm someone. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. How much is this relationship worth to you? We, we talk a lot about it. Is it worth paying for a hotel room to get along with God? Yeah, it is, actually. Is it worth... You know, I, oftentimes I go to a Bible camp or something. Just, I didn't want to go to a resort where there's all these couples and whatever just making me feel even worse about it. But you have to look into how can you get alone with God in a way that will restore your soul. Getting out in nature absolutely refusing to go the self-pity route. Not just getting busy in activities, but saying, Father, walk with me. I'm going to a Christmas party. You know I don't like these things. Would you show me someone to minister to? Would you show me who I can encourage? And it's not the best-looking people in the place, I can assure you. Those are the people I want sent to me, we all are attracted to the beautiful, the wealthy, the intelligent, but everyone wants attention from them. I wonder if there's someone there that he would send to you. And if you would pray about it as you go or on your way, say, let's do this together. And then on the way back, you can give him a high five in the seat next to you. I act as if God is absolutely real to me. Because my brain, very logical, doesn't always latch on to that. So as I drive, I'm patting his knee next to me on the seat. I now have a wife next to me on the seat. I'm very happy about that. But when I'm alone in the car, I still do that. I act as if he is always there. Is there something that you can do in your sphere to make it more neurologically real to you because this world and all of our electronics is crowding him out. We want all the stimulation and our imaginations are very, very small. We are only able to imagine what is on a screen for us. Oh, we're missing out. I told you I'd give you a minute and I started talking again. So I better give you a minute right now. I'm going to give you a minute of silence. I love to do this and let God speak to you now.